Matthew uh, chapter 23 is where we're at this morning. And uh, as we did last week, we'll pick up in verse 1 and we'll read through the chapter. Matthew writes, Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works. For they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them, uh, lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. Um, but he who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive a greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel the land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, Whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. Which is greater, the gold of the, or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that's on the altar, right? He's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and uh, all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you're sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, you can, uh, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city that you may uh, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah son of Berechiah whom you murdered between the temple and the altar as surely I say to you all these things will come upon this generation oh Jerusalem Jerusalem the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. 
For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, as we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew, we come to Matthew 23. And as I said last week, you know, I am so thankful for the Bible. I'm so thankful for the Word of God. God has given us His Word. And as we give ourselves to His Word, as we read it, as we study it, as we embrace it, as we drink it in, the effect that the Word has on our lives is that it's, it molds us and shapes us into the image of Jesus Christ himself. And, and boy, I tell you, I long to be like Jesus, to be in constant communion with the Father, to be, you know, always in tune with the Father's heart, to be led by the Spirit of God, living a life focused on bringing God uh, glory. Um, you know, that's, that's what uh, God desires for each one of us. And, you know, as believers, each one of us, that's what we should de desire also. Our hearts should cry out regularly as individuals and as the church. You know, Lord, move on us. Let your spirit fall on us. Lord, fashion us and make us into the men and women you desire us to be for your glory and for your purposes. We, we desire to be set apart for your kingdom. We desire to be fashioned by you, Lord, instead of being fashioned by this world. Lord, would you use us for your glory? Man, I, I hope that's your prayer. That's my prayer. I just want to be used for God's glory. Well, you know, we started uh, looking at Matthew chapter 23 last week. And, uh, you know, we noted last week that this is Jesus' last public address before his death. This is the last time he speaks uh, in the hearing of the multitudes that have been following him. After this, he's going to pull away from the crowds of the people that are following him and then concentrate on pouring into his disciples, preparing them, getting them ready for the events ahead, you know, primarily uh, the cross. Now, it's interesting to note that Jesus' uh, woes in this chapter, his rebuke, his um, denunciation of the scribes and the Pharisees, you know, their man-made traditions and regulations resulting in a false religion and, uh, uh, you know, uh, that was created by false spiritual leaders. His woes here, these, these woes, they come at the end of his ministry. And, you know, they're in sharp contrast to the Beatitudes that Jesus spoke at the beginning of his ministry in uh, what's called the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes set forth the blessing of true religion and the witness of true uh, believers. And so, you know, I encourage you, maybe you might want to uh, go back and look at the Beatitudes and compare and contrast them to the woes that we have here um, in uh, chapter 23. Um, last week, we looked at verses 1 through 12 as we saw Jesus speaking to the multitudes and to the disciples. And now in verses 13 through 39, the verses that we're going to look at this morning, uh, Jesus turns and he directs his comments now to the scribes and Pharisees. The scribes, uh, they were the experts of the Old Testament laws. Their job was the transcription of the scriptures. Back in those days, the scriptures, they were written on rolls, scrolls uh, made for, of parchment or vellum, animal skins. And as they grew old and as they began to show wear, uh, the scribes would uh, copy those scriptures and they would meticulously transcribe those scriptures by hand, one letter at a time. One letter at a time, right? Uh, and if they made one little error while copying the scriptures, when they got to the end of, end of that, that book that they were transcribing, if, if it didn't end up in the exact same place as the book that they were copying, Right? They would destroy that copy and they would start all over. Um, each time uh, a scribe came to the name of the Lord, what he would do is he'd put his pen down and he would go and he would take a bath. And then he would come back. 
uh, return to his work, and then he would take a fresh pen and fresh ink and write the name of the Lord. And, uh, you know, that's the kind of detail, uh, attention that they gave to copying the scriptures. They were very strict on, on copying it. And because of this close association with the scriptures, the scribes, they became the expert on the Old Testament laws so that they would uh, explain the scriptures to the people. And then on the other hand, you have the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, you know, the word Pharisee just means separated ones, right? Because of the strictness of this particular group, the Pharisees, there were never more than 6,000 Pharisees in the nation at any one time. Um, after the Jews returned from the Babylonian captivity, there was a group of men that understood that that captivity came about because the people failed to keep, um, failed to follow God's laws. So this group of men, they dedicated themselves to keeping every single commandment found in the law. They were separated to the law. That's how that group came about. And they were determined to enforce the law so that, you know, they would never, ever again uh, end up in captivity, go away into captivity. And so here in this chapter, we see Jesus pronouncing woes on these two groups of of men. You know, they started out good. They started out with the right intentions, but they grew corrupt, right? They allowed their hearts to drift from the truth. And they got to the place where they coveted the praise of man instead of the praise of God. So Jesus launches into the scathing rebuke and denunciation of the scribes and Pharisees here in Matthew 23, hoping to shake these guys up, to shake these religious leaders up and show them their ultimate destruction should they continue in their ways unrepentantly. And so we pick it up in verse 13. Jesus says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. You know, we're going to see Jesus pronounce eight woes uh, against the scribes and the Pharisees. Eight times Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Seven of the eight times Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Right? The Greek word translated woe in these verses, it's actually a, a difficult word to translate. Uh, it not only carries with it the idea of wrath, but it also uh, carries with it the idea of sorrow, right? So these woes are pronounced by Jesus in righteous indignation. You know, he has a righteous anger towards these religious leaders. But you know what? It comes from a heart that's broken at the same time, right? A broken heart brought about by their stubbornness and their unwillingness to respond to the love mercy and compassion of God. You know, Jesus has a broken heart as a result of their refusal to embrace him as their heaven-sent Messiah. And we also want to see Jesus repeatedly calls the religious leaders hypocrites, right? Again, the word uh, translated hypocrite, it, it comes from the theater. Uh, it was a word used of the actors on the stage that were playing a part. It was a word uh, that came to mean actor in the worst possible sense of the word. It was, it was used of a pretender, uh, one who wore a mask to cover his true feelings, one who put uh, an external show on while inwardly their thoughts and feelings were something very different. And that's exactly what these scribes and Pharisees were doing. They were just playing a part. You know, their idea of religion uh, consisted of outward observances only. You know, while they neglected this inward, the inward condition of their hearts, you know, and again, this was evidence. That situation was evidenced by uh, them trying to appear very spiritual to others. You know, tying these larger and larger and larger phylacteries, these boxes on their forehead uh, to look more spiritual, enlarging the borders of their garments to look more spiritual, and meticulously observing all the rules and regulations of the law. 
But in their hearts, it was in their hearts they were, they were concealing bitterness, you know, and envy and pride and arrogance. You know, their outward actions while they're trying to appear spiritual to others, you know, they're just trying to cover up this evil heart of theirs, you know, full of stubbornness and hatred and murder. And Jesus indicts them here, uh, you know, saying that they neither go into the kingdom of heaven and they don't allow others to enter in who are honestly seeking to come to God themselves, right? They were hindering others uh, from coming to God. The Pharisees presented, you know, uh, presented honest seekers of God with thousands of petty little rules, you know, which had the effect basically of just slamming the door of heaven in, in their faces, right? So we see Jesus here, he's angry, you know, a righteous anger towards the religious leaders who were being, you know, they, they weren't being the leaders they were supposed to be. They weren't leaders at all. What they were, they were just roadblocks and hindrances and obstacles from people coming to God. So seven times Jesus calls them hypocrites, mask wearers. Something that, you know, you notice uh, and you see throughout Scripture is that hip hypocrisy, when we live lives of hypocrisy, it always affects other people, right? It's just not something that we do alone. You know, look at how Paul indicts the hypocrite in Romans 2, 21 through 24. Paul writes, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourselves? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The Gentiles were blaspheming God's name because the way that the Jewish people were living uh, is what Paul was saying, right? Something that we need to be very careful of as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, is getting into a habit where we separate our spiritual lives from our lives, you know, outside of church. You know, the lives that we have in church around these, these friends of ours, and then the, the lives that we have outside of church around this other group of friends of ours. You know, it's something that we shouldn't do. You know, why do you think so, you hear so many people say, you know, I don't want to go to church. It's just full of hypocrites. You know, we can turn people away from the Lord if we live a life of hypocrisy. And we should be careful of it, right? There was a young Jewish boy you know, raised to follow the law, the teachings of the rabbis. You know, every Saturday, he and his family went, uh, they kept the Shabbat. When he was 13 years old, like his older brother, he, um, you know, had his bar mitzvah. You know, now being considered an adult Jewish male, he's able to worship God with, with the other men, other Jewish men, as in a, a full-grown adult. You know, and then one day, when his father came home and said, you know, the business isn't doing so well here. We're going to have to move. And, uh, you know, they moved to another area uh, where there wasn't a large Jewish community. There wasn't a Jewish community there at all. Predominantly, it was a Lutheran community. And the father came home and said, from now on, we're going to worship God the way the Lutherans worship God. You know, we're going to go to Lutheran worship. And that 13-year-old boy cried out saying, Dad. What about the law? What about the Shabbat? What about my bar mitzvah? You know, and the father said, son, it's about time you learn. If we're going to be uh, successful in business, we're going to have to compromise. You know, if, if our business is, is going to work here, we're going to have to be Lutheran. And you know, that just crushed this young boy, just crushed him. And you know who that young boy was, don't you? It was Karl Marx. You know, and he went on to write very bitterly, you know, that religion is the opiate of the masses. 
you know that it's just empty and hollow. And his writings are still affecting people in a very bitter and angry way today. In fact, you know, we're seeing the effects of his writings moving more and more. You turn on the news, you see it more and more in our culture, in our world today, right? And it all started with hypocrisy. Jesus said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. And as I said earlier, this is Jesus' last public sermon, right? You'd think that he'd use his last public address as an opportunity to preach a, a sermon on salvation. But Jesus uses this time instead to deal with the religious leaders of the day. And he preaches a sermon of condemnation, right? Woe to you, scribes, and uh, woe to you, religious leaders, who fail to enter into the kingdom, and at the same time you slam the door shut in the faces of, of those who are trying to enter in. Verse 14, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses. You're making merchandise of people, ripping off widows, fleecing the innocent, all in the name of religion. You know, I think it's okay for us to get a little angry. You know, with the guys today who are masquerading as uh, religious leaders that are fleecing people. You know, they're preaching this prosperity doctrine while robbing the people blind. You know, if you'll just give, God will give back to you, right? You know, with the same measure you give, God will give back to you. What they do is they take these verses out of context in order to guilt people into giving, to rip people off and just to line their own pockets. You know, I've heard preachers say, if you don't give this week, well, our lights are going to get turned off. You know, it's urgent for you to give right now or else our vital ministry will not be able to continue. You know, you know, my thoughts when I hear those things is maybe God doesn't want your lights on. Maybe he doesn't want your vital ministry to continue. You know what? I firmly believe, I believe it with all my heart, where God guides, God provides. God's not broke, right? And he's not looking to any of us to pay his electric bill. Beware of any ministry that makes money its primary focus, its primary emphasis. It should be a warning sight to all of us if the emphasis of a ministry is always on money. You know, these religious leaders, they were devouring these widows' houses and for a pretense making these long prayers. Therefore, Jesus says, you'll receive a greater condemnation. Their spirituality was an act. And they got so good at it, they could turn it on and off whenever they wanted to. And Jesus said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And in verse 15, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. You travel all over the place just to make a single convert. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Now, these are strong words coming out of Jesus' mouth right here. You know, I mean, dang. And Jesus, he continues, verse 16, Woe to you. Blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obliged to perform it. I mean, these guys had all these little rules, regulations, where they could make these oaths. But in reality, they had their fingers crossed, right? Jesus indicts them because they were swearing by the temple saying, that's nothing. I didn't swear by the gold of the temple. You didn't hear me say the gold of the temple. Now, did you? No, you didn't, did you? No, therefore, I'm not obliged to keep that oath. Um, because you didn't hear me say, I swear by the gold of the temple. Better luck next time, amigo. You know, maybe, you know, you'll pay closer attention next time, won't you? And, and they had all these little tricks and these systems so that they could get around these oaths that they, that they would make. And in verse 17, Jesus says, fools and blind. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it's, it is nothing but whoever swears by the gift on the altar. He is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Again, they'd say, I didn't swear the, uh, uh, 
by the gift on the altar, right? I never, I never said I would do it, you know? I, 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 I didn't say the, you know, I said the gift. I didn't say the altar, you know? And they were very clear, you know? Therefore, they'd say, you know, hey, I, I'm not obliged to fulfill that promise, you know? I never said altar. I just said the gift. You didn't hear me say altar, did you? You know, you didn't hear me say cross my heart, hope to die, or tap, tap, no erases. So, you know, you're out of luck, buddy. I don't have to go ahead and do that. They had all these ways of getting out of doing what was right. And you might remember a few chapters ago, uh, you know, we, we saw how they would say Corbin to get out of supplying the needs of their aging parents, right? Instead of honoring their mother and father and helping take care of them the way they were supposed to, They'd say, sorry, mom and dad, you know, Corbin, Corbin, you know, everything I have is dedicated to the Lord. You know what? I'm so spiritual, you know, everything I own, I've given it to the Lord. I'd like to help you out, mom and dad. I mean, you understand, don't you? And, and what would happen is, you know, when it was convenient for them, they would say Corbin again, and everything was undedicated to the Lord. You know, and they were free to use that, uh, their resources, however they wanted to. And they use these things to get out of, of taking care of their parents. They, they made up all these kind of rules to benefit themselves. And Jesus is condemning them for it. He's speaking out against their hypocrisy. And in verse 20, he says, Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You know what? In Scripture, when you see things repeated, it kind of lets us know, again, that God is trying to emphasize something for us. He's trying to make this point crystal clear for us. I'm sure that's the case as Jesus repeats, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You know, we're not to miss this. And he goes on, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. You know what the scribes and the Pharisees would do is they would uh, take their salt and pepper shakers and they would pour it out on the table, you know. And then they would count it out. One grain of salt for the Lord nine for me. One grain of salt for the Lord, nine for me. One grain of salt for the Lord, nine for me. And you know what? Okay, now for the deal. They dump the deal out on the table. They dump all their spices out on the table. You know, uh, I got to make sure I'm obedient to tithe to the Lord as commanded. God, God says I need to tithe. It says that the tithe is holy uh, to the Lord. You know, Leviticus 27, 30. Right? And Jesus says to them, you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. You're all concerned about tithing your mint, your anise, your cumin, but there's no justice. You're living unjust lives. You're careful to tithe all your spices, but where's the mercy in your lives? You know, you guys are are the religious leaders supposedly representing God, but you're showing no mercy. You've left the weightier matters of the law go undone. Now, you should notice this. It's important for us to see that Jesus says in the last part of verse 23, these you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. And what we see here is Jesus is affirming the tithe. He said, these you ought to have done. Scripture is very clear. The tithe does belong to the Lord. You know, in the book of Malachi, God says to his people, you know, you've been robbing me. And their response is like, what do you mean? How have we been robbing you? You know, Malachi chapter 3, you can check it out uh, later. You know, their response is, what do you mean? How have we been robbing you? And God says, you've, you haven't been giving the tithe. Therefore, you've been robbing me. And God says, you know, why don't you put me to the test here? Why don't you put me to the test? It's the only place I know of in Scripture that God, you know, encourages and challenges us to test him. He says, test me on this. Why don't you tithe and see if I don't open the floodgates of heaven to you? 
You know, I'll open the floodgates of heaven in such a way you won't be able to take in all the blessings that I pour out on you. You know, in honesty, I don't mind admitting to you, I haven't always been a faithful tither as a Christian. You know, but for the last 35 years or more, Tina and I, we've always tithed uh, a tenth of our income at the very least. You know, uh, whether we thought we could afford it or not, but, you know, for a lot of people, it's like, boy, I would love to tithe, but we just don't have it. Sorry, Lord, you know, we don't have your 10%. You know, it kind of reminds me of the story of that little boy. He's got two quarters. He's walking to church, you know, and his plan is he's going to buy a piece of candy with one quarter. And with the other quarter, he's going to drop it in the offering box. And as he's walking to the, you know, to church, he's going to, you know, he's heading to the store to get that candy and he's playing with his quarters. And one of them, he drops and it falls and it rolls into the storm drain. And he says, Lord, I'm sorry, but your quarter <laughs> fell into the drain. You know, I think that's the way it is for a lot of people. I'm sorry, Lord, I love to tithe, but I just don't have it this week. I don't, I don't have it this pay period. I don't have it this month. You know, for Tina and I, our lives financially has been a miracle, truly has been. You know, as a young couple, as young kids, at one point we were homeless and we weren't able to buy. I couldn't buy a job. It was so rough. You know, 15 years on the mission field with no guarantee of any income. You know what we did? We tithed through all of that. And God has blessed us. You know, we sat back and we just watched the Lord meet one need after another. God has given us so much, right? We have everything we need, everything we've ever wanted and more. You know, I never thought that, we would ever own a house, you know, be able to buy a house. And God has given us a beautiful house in, in Verdi. God has literally opened the floodgates of heaven and has blessed us. You know, and honestly, the way I feel now, I feel like I can't afford not to tithe, right? You know, we tithe out of obedience to the Lord. That's the number one reason. But, you know, the other reason we tithe is because, you know what? I don't want to miss out on a single blessing the Lord wants to pour out on me, pour out on our lives. I don't know if you've ever heard, you've probably never heard of a guy named R.G. Letenu. It's French. I don't know if I said it right. But anyway, he was born in 1880, died in uh, 1969. Born in 1888, died in 1969. R.G. is, as he uh, was known, you know, he imagined and he designed all kinds, uh, all different types of heavy machinery, right? And, and uh, huge, because of it, huge amount of money uh, just started flowing in, right? He held more than 300 patents for all kinds of earth-moving equipment that he designed. Uh, he designed bulldozers and all kinds of scrapers. And at one time, at least, his name became synonymous with earth-moving equipment worldwide. R.G. and his wife, Evelyn, you know, they were Christians and they walked with Jesus. And they believed that, you know, all riches belonged to God. Everything they had was his. So R.G. and his wife, Evelyn, what they did was they decided they, they would begin to give 90%. That's what you guys are missing out on. Anyway, R.G. and his wife, they decided to give 90% of their income to the Lord and only live on 10%. They were, you know, reverse tithers. His attitude was, it's not how much of my money I give to God, but how much of God's money I keep for myself. And God blessed them for their faith. God blessed them for their faithful giving. And at the end of their, uh, R.G.'s life, he had a net worth of $5 million dollars. And uh, that was only keeping the 10% that he made, right? He gave out everything else. R.G. was fond of saying, of saying, I shovel out the money and God shovels it back. God has a bigger shovel than I do. You know, in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, Paul writes, he says, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Listen, it's all up to you. It's all up to you. The very next verse, 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly of necessity, 
for God loves a cheerful giver. God is not interested at any time. God is not interested in turning the screws to you to have you give to the church grudgingly or out of compulsion, right? Guilting you into giving. You know, make no mistake about it. God doesn't need your money, right? But he knows that we have a need to be givers, right? He's not after our money. He's not after your money. He's after our heart. He's after your heart. And if you don't want to give, hey, don't give. Wow, Gary's really laying it on pretty heavy today, isn't he? Right? I mean, he's probably took a look at the tithe records and things are down. No, not true. You know what? I have no idea who tithes in this church and who doesn't. You know, I don't look at the tithe record. I never have and I never will. It's totally between you and the Lord. You know? And you know, if you've come here for any length of time, you know that the only time we talk about tithing is when it comes up in Scripture. Jesus is our focus, not your money. Right? Did you know? <laughs> it's kind of funny, I think. Did you know that there are some churches that send you a bill when you sign up for membership? Right? And then they charge you interest if you don't get your tithe in on time. You know, it's true. You know, God wants you to be a, he wants you to be a joyful giver. He wants to give joyfully. The idea in the Greek there in 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Can you pull it up again, Tricia? 2 Corinthians 9, 7, where it says, where it's translated a cheerful giver. Uh, it literally is a hilarious giver. God desires us to give joyfully and, and to experience the joy of giving, right? If, if you're not in the habit of tithing, boy, I'd like to lovingly encourage you this morning. Put God to the test. Tithe from what you have and watch God bless you. Watch God open the floodgates of heaven and pour out on you a blessing so great that you wouldn't be able to take it in. As he says in Malachi, you know, so many people, when it comes to, to uh, encouraging others, so many people like to quote Philippians 4.19, which says, And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Well, contextually, that promise is given only to those who are given to the church, right? To those that are giving of their resources uh, for the work of the ministry. Those that's who that promises goes out to. And then in Philippians 4, 17, Paul says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your gift. Paul encouraged the Philippian church to give that they might receive fruit that would abound from their giving. Well, Jesus goes on, he says to them, these you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides. This is the fourth time Jesus calls them blind. And he's going to call them blind another time, verse 26. What, what do you think Jesus is trying to say to these spiritual leaders? <laughs> I mean, the picture he's trying to communicate is of the blind leading the blind. You know, it's one guy with very dark glasses and a white cane tapping the ground saying to another blind guy, come on, I'll show you where we're headed, right? These scribes and Pharisees had no idea where they were headed, and they certainly weren't equipped to show anybody else the way. They were blindly leading others. And you know how sad it is. How sad it is to see religious leaders leading people astray. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. You know, it was a fairly common sight to see a scribe and the Pharisees pouring their wine through a piece of cloth. Uh, in order to strain out gnats that maybe have fallen into their wine. You know, gnats are unclean, right? You know, it wasn't an uncommon sight to see a Pharisee walking down the street with his finger in his, in his mouth, trying to gag himself, trying to make him throw up because, you know, blood, a bug flew into his mouth that wasn't bled properly. You know, I don't want to be unclean, you know? Uh, you know, they were overly concerned with very, very small details, why huge issues just passed right before them without any attention given to it at all, right? They were straining out gnats and swallowing a camel. And it's just a funny picture Jesus lays out there. Verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of extortion and self-indulgence. It'd be like you cleaning up after dinner, 
You know, you're washing the outside of the bowl, you're washing the outside of the cups, and you put them back in your cupboards. But the inside of them are still dirty, you know, with table scraps and, and half-masticated pieces of meat, you know, inside, and you're just putting them away. Jesus is relating these scribes and Pharisees to cups and dishes that were nice and clean, but only on the outside. Inside, they were full of extortion. They were extorting God's people, literally robbing the people, fleecing the flock. Annas, the high priest, was making millions of dollars a year, rejecting the sacrifices that people would bring from home to offer in the temple and forcing them to buy pre-approved temple sacrifices at a greatly inflated price. They were devouring poor, defenseless widows. They were taking advantage of, of them and you know, they were full of self-indulgences, uh, outwardly religious, but inwardly they were just seeking to gratify their own flesh, only thinking of what would be beneficial to them, giving no thoughts to others. In verse 26, Jesus says again, blind Pharisees, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that the outside of them may also be clean. God is concerned with our hearts. That's God's concern, our hearts. He's concerned with the unseen part of our lives and the motivations behind men and women's actions. Verse 27, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You know, in Israel, even in this day, they whitewashed tombs. Uh, the reason why is because according to the Old Testament, you know, if a person touches a dead body or touches a tomb, well, you know, uh, they become unclean. So they whitewash them in order that you'll see them and be able to stay clear of them. And you know what? They look beautiful. You get out there, you see all these whitewashed tombs, they're just... They're beautiful, all white and clean. They're all very nice and neat and orderly. And Jesus says, you guys are like these tombs. You guys are like these sepulchers, all nice and pretty, white and clean on the outside. You've got your religious act up for everybody to see, right? You know, you got this external front up where everybody sees you and thinks, wow, what a godly man he is, I mean. Geez, look how, look how spiritual that guy is. But on the inside, there's just spiritual death, Jesus is telling them. You know, on the inside, you guys are full of death and spiritual uncleanness. On the outside, you appear spiritual and righteous men, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness, full of rebellion against God. A.W. Tozer said, what you are in public will never fool God to what you are in private. Boy, isn't that true? You know, what a warning this is that Jesus is giving to each one of us here this morning, right? We should be more concerned about what's going on in our hearts, what's happening on the inside, instead of being concerned about what other people think about us uh, on the outside. You know, you can fool all the people some of the time. You can fool some of the people. How's it go? You can fool some of the people some of the... You can fool some of the people all the time. You can fool all the people some of the time. But you can never fool God. You can never fool God. He sees. We need to be real with Him. We don't have to play pretend with Him. We don't have to put an act on for Him. He sees. He knows. You know what? He wants us to be real with him. You know what? If you're going through a hard time, it's okay to say, God, you know what? I'm really going through it this week. Man, I really need some help right now. You know, it's okay to come here and not say, hey, hi, everyone. You know, how, how am I doing? I'm doing great, man. Everything's just dandy when you're dying on the inside. You know what? Let's be real with each other. Right? Let's you know, let's ask our brothers and sisters to pray for us when we're struggling. 
Ask them to throw their arm around us. And, and you know what? Let's rally to those people that are hurting. Let's come around them. And, and you know, uh, they're not looking for us to give them answers. You know what they're, they're looking for is someone to love them, someone to think the best of them, someone to stand with them and hold them up in prayer. You know, let's be real with God and be with, real with each other. Hypocrisy just turns people away. If you're doing great every time everyone sees you, if you're a 10 on a scale of 10, 10 being the best, you know what? How can anyone else ever live up to that? Man, they're just super Christians. They're just super Christians. You know, I can never be like that. You know, I'm just struggling to get through the day while everyone else in church is doing great. I mean, you ever feel like that? You ever feel like you're the only one, you're the only Christian that's struggling? You're not. You're not. You know what? The other day, you know, Jeff, he asked me how I was doing, you know, and I just paused a second. And I just said, you know, I'm hanging in there. And he said, I know. You don't hide it very well. <laughs> and I don't. I don't want to hide it well, man. I'm a mess. You know, Jeff, he says, I'm praying for you. And I can't tell you how encouraging that was to me to know that he loved me enough to pray for me. He loved me enough to have my back. You know, we need to be real with God. We need to be real with one another. And we need to rally to those that are hurting and lift them up to the throne of grace. Come alongside of them and just pray for them. You don't have a, a prayer life? Be real about it and come to underground prayer Saturday nights and say, I need your guys' prayer. Would you pray with me that God would work with me uh, work in my life in this area. And then commit to developing a, a prayer life by just, you know, it's just this easy to develop a prayer life. Come on Saturday nights and just pray with us. You know, just pray with other brothers and sisters. You know, you don't have godly friends to encourage you in your, in your walk. You know what? Be real about it. Come to the men's study on Tuesday morning. Come to the ladies' study on Tuesday morning and ask for prayer. And then just make a commitment to come, plug in, attend each week, and develop those godly um, relationships that we need in the body of Christ. It's that simple. Whatever is going on, we need to be real with each other and just pray for one another. Verse 39, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of, of the prophets and adore the monuments of the righteous. And again, they still do this today. You know, you can go to Israel and go to David's tomb. You know, it's all gold plated. There's flowers, you know, it's all nicely taken care of. You can go to Israel, see uh, Samuel's tomb. You know, it, it, it looks real nice, like I say. And Jesus indicts them here saying, hypocrites, you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been uh, partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you witness against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. And in fact, you're planning on murdering me, he says. You know what's in your heart and you bear witness against yourself. Verse 32, fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. You're just like your fathers. You're just as guilty as they were. You have the same heart they had. And you're going to bear the consequences of that guilt, right? You're going to fill up the measure of your father's guilt. Verse 33, serpents. How well do you think that went over with the scribes and the Pharisees? You know, serpents, brood of vipers. You know, a, a viper is a very small snake, looks just like a stick. You remember Paul on the Isle of Malta? He's picking up sticks for the fire and a you know, a viper clings to his hand and he shakes it off in the fire. You know, you can't tell a viper from a stick. They look so much alike. So when you're gathering sticks, you know, I mean, there's one. You're going to go pick it up. It's a viper and it, it bites, bites you. And they're deadly. They're deadly. I remember when we first moved to Hungary, Brian, you know, he was just a little boy. And, uh, you know, he was outside in front of our house, I think it was. You know, I wasn't there. It was actually Tina. But Tina sees Brian squatting down, you know. He's reaching to pick something up. That's the way Brian was. He's always picking up things. One time we were in the San Diego Zoo, a little boy. And, uh, you know, we're in this 
big enclosure with real exotic butterflies. You look over and there's Brian. He's like, <laughs> he missed this really big, beautiful blue butterfly. Man, I just saw dollar signs like that's going to cost me 5,000 bucks. It's just the way Brian was, but he was a little boy and, and Tina sees him there in, in, the, in the front of the house, you know, and he's bending down, he's reaching for something. Tina saw what he was doing and suddenly yelled out, Brian, no. He was reaching for a viper. He was reaching for a viper. It was totally God's grace. Tina saw what he was doing because they're deadly. You know, we, we could have had uh, two kids right now instead of three. But Jesus is calling these scribes and Pharisees deadly serpents here. Right? You look innocent, but your theology is deadly. Serpents, he says, brood of vipers. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? I mean, Jesus, he just sounds like a hellfire and brimstone preacher right here, doesn't he? Again, what happened to Jesus, meek and mild? Well, Jesus is meek and mild. He is lowly and gentle. But he has a righteous indignation for those who are making merchandise of people desiring to come to God. He's righteously angered with those who hinder others from entering into the kingdom. You know what? I wouldn't want to be in the shoes of many religious leaders today. You know, God is going to judge harshly so many preachers today that water down the gospel, that say, hey, you don't have to repent. What you're doing is okay. God will forgive you anyway. You don't have to repent to be saved. No, you have to repent from your sins. You have to turn from your sins. Turn to God in order to be saved. Verse 34, Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogue and persecute from city to city. Verse 35, Then uh, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Jesus says, you murdered all these guys. A to Z, you murdered all of them. From Abel to Zechariah, you murdered all these guys. Interesting to note here, who sent the Old Testament prophets to the nation of Israel? First Chronicles 16, it says that God calls them his prophets, right? It was God who called and sent prophets to the nation of Israel. And what you want to notice here is that Jesus says in verse 34 that he had sent them the prophets. You know what? Jesus very clearly claims to be God right here in that verse. Verse 36 says, Surely I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And it surely did, didn't it? Right? This very same generation was present when the Roman general Titus came in 70 AD and laid siege to the city of Jerusalem and destroyed it. 1.1 million Jews just slaughtered. Those who persecuted were now being persecuted. And it's interesting to note, as Jesus said in verse 32, fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. In verse 36, as surely I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. It's amazing the persecution that has come upon the Jewish people. Listen to spiritual truth. What you sow is what you're going to reap. In verse 37, Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. And you need to see here that Jesus isn't standing before the scribes and Pharisees, you know, consumed in anger. He doesn't have these veins just bulging out of his neck. He's not spitting as he's yelling and screaming, pointing a bony finger at them, pointing out their sin. That's not the scene at all. It's not the scene. What we see here is that even through, though Jesus was righteously angered at the scribes and the Pharisees, what they were doing, he still has this, this tremendous compassion in his heart for them. His heart was broken over those who had strayed so far. And you can hear in his voice the longing for every one of these guys when he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the ones... The one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often? And here you can, you can really see the Lord's heart, even at this point in his message. 
How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You know, you might want to underline in your Bible how often I wanted and you were not willing. Because that's the case for so many people. God's wanting, but they're not willing. And the picture here that Jesus lays out is this picture of a hen gathering her chicks under her wings. It's a picture of protection. It's a picture of safety. And it's a beautiful picture. It's a real picture. This happens. This is what hens do with their chicks. They gather their chicks and they watch over each one of them, keeping them warm, keeping them safe, nursing them and, and uh, you know, being there for them. And you've probably heard, again, true stories of hens when their barns or their, their uh, chicken coops catch fire. A hen will gather her chicks under her wings to protect them and she'll give her life. She'll take the fire. She'll sacrifice her life in order to protect her chicks under her wings. And Jesus is just painting this beautiful picture of what he has done. This is exactly what Jesus had done for, has done for us. He's taken the fiery indignation, the fiery judgment that our sins deserved. He's taken our place that we might be safe, protected from the wrath of God that our sins deserve that he would set us free to live a life for him. And Jesus said, how often I want it, but you are not willing. Just like these scribes and Pharisees who continued in their rejection of Jesus. There are so many people today who refuse to come to Jesus, embrace him as their Messiah, as their Savior. And it just breaks the Lord's heart. It just breaks his heart. In verse 38, See, your house is left to you desolate. How sad. You might remember a few chapters ago, Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But now Jesus says, it's your house. And I think there are a lot of churches like that. You know, it's no longer his house. It's their house. It's their church. You know what? May it never be the case here at Calvary Chapel Truckee. May he always... Uh, be welcomed here. May this always be his house. May he always be glorified here. May he always be exalted here. May he always be enthroned here. May his presence always fill this place. Jesus says, see your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, verse 29, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You shall see me no more until you say, speaking to the religious leaders, speaking to the nation of Israel, the next time you see me is when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We're going to finish up here. I got a couple quick things in closing though. The, the very next thing, we know the very next event on God's prophetic calendar, the, the, there's nothing left prophetically speaking that needs to be accomplished right? The very next thing on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. The very next thing to happen, prophetically speaking, is the church is going to be snatched away. And you know what? We're going to meet the Lord in, in the air. And he's going to take us to heaven where we're going to be safe and sound with him, where we're going to be enjoying what's called the marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19. And during this time, There'll be a man, he'll show up on the scene. And, uh, you know, the Bible calls him the Antichrist. And uh, he's going to establish, establish himself as a world leader. And this man is going to seem to have all the answers for the world's problems, right? And he'll be a man of tremendous charisma. And one of the things he's going to do is he's going to confirm a covenant with the nation of Israel for a week, right? And that covenant is going to... Uh, bring in, you know, uh, a peace like never before in the Middle East. But, you know, in the middle of that seven-year covenant, he's going to break that treaty. He's going to go into the Holy of Holies in the temple that's yet to be built. He's going to go into the Holy of Holies and he's going to declare himself to be God and he's going to demand the world to worship him as God. And Daniel calls that act the abomination of desolation. The abomination, it's the abomination that brings 
desolation. And Jesus says, when you see that happen, when you see the abomination that brings desolation, get out. You know what? Go. Don't look back, right? Because God is going to pour out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world like the world has never seen in, in, in its history. And at the end of what's called the seven-year uh, period, that, that great tribulation, you know, the seven-year period where God's pouring out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world, the church safe and secure in heaven with Jesus, at the end of that seven-year period, Israel will recognize Jesus as their Messiah. And it's at that point, Zechariah 12.10 says, and I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. They, sh they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. And Zechariah 13.6 and one will say to him, where are these wounds in your hands? Right? And that's the correct translation of the Hebrew here. Your Bible may read arms, may read chest, may read back, may read body. But the correct translation is hands. Where are these wounds in your hands? Then he will say, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. It's in that day they'll recognize Jesus and grieve over what has happened to him. They'll understand that they crucified their Messiah. And they'll mourn, they'll grieve. Where did you get these wounds? And they'll say, in the house of my friends. And they'll recognize him as their Messiah. And they'll say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know what? We're living in exciting times. And as we continue in our study of Matthew, you know, we're coming up, Matthew 24, uh, 25, the all of that discourse. You know, we're going to go deeper into these end time events as we continue our study. But you know, one thing, just really quick, one last thing. You know, I feel the Lord has given me a word this week, just praying, praying over, you know, friends of mine in Ukraine and, and uh, our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. I feel the Lord has given me a word for us as a church, as his church here in Truckee, Right? As we're watching the news, seeing the events playing out in the world, you know, Russia invading Ukraine, and I don't know if you saw the news this morning, Russia has just, Putin has just ordered his nuclear arsenal to a higher level of combat readiness, threatening an escalation of nuclear war. China's just watching to see how the world's going to respond to this invasion as they're, you know, uh, ratcheting up tensions, taking an ever more aggressive posture towards ta uh, Taiwan. Iran desiring a nuclear weapon to use on Israel. You know, their willingness, our willingness as a nation to lift the sanctions to allow Iran to achieve their goal. You know, I felt the Lord speak to me about what we're to be doing during this time. And it comes from Haggai 2, verses 3 through 9. It says, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now in comparison with it? Is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the word I've covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. So my spirit remains among you, do not fear, for thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. You know, I don't know where some of you stand. Some of you that have attended Calvary Chapel, Truckee for a long time. You know, I don't, I don't have a good sense of how you feel things are going now as a church versus, you know, the church the way it was in its heyday. You know, but I felt the Lord speak to my heart very strongly 
as, as we look at what's going on in the world today, and as we're literally going deeper every day into the end times, further and further every day, you know what? We're to work in this world with a sense of urgency. And the encouragement is the Lord is with us. You know, in these last days, the Lord is desiring to build a place where people can gather in his name, you know, worship him, enjoy his glory, just bask in his glory, enjoy his peace. Calvary Chapel Truckee, God is with us. Let's work. Let's invite people to church. Let's look for opportunities to share our faith. Come out on Wednesdays when we're talking about sharing our faith. How to do it effectively. You know, that's our role during this time. That's our role. You know, let's be known for the gospel. Let's impact the lives of people around us for the gospel's sake, for eternity's sake. You know, let's affect the lives of those who are watching things playing out and wondering. People are wondering. You know, what's going to happen next? You know what? We know what's going to happen next. We know. We have the answers. Let's step out of faith and see what God will do. May God give us ears to hear him speak and respond to him. May he give us a sense of urgency. People all around us are dying and going to hell. Let's pray. Lord, I just so thank you for your word. Lord, help us. Help us guide our hearts from slipping into hypocrisy. Help us, help us to avoid slipping into living one life and saying we believe another thing. Lord, help us live what we believe, that you are the only answer. You're the only answer to that viper called sin. Lord, you're the only answer to escape the judgment. God's wrath and righteous indignation on a Christ-rejecting world. Lord, you have given us the answer for life eternal. Lord, would you just work in our hearts to share it with others around us. Lord, we ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.